everyone. Welcome back to Palm Peeps. We're uh, recording this episode in early December, and we just want to make sure we congratulate everyone who just finished their pulmonary and critical care boards. Uh, finally behind you, only a lifetime of tests ahead of you. Uh, and we also want to congratulate everyone who just matched a fellowship. Christina, as an APD herself, also congrats with being done with recruitment. I'm sure it's a big sigh of relief. Uh, I hope you took a, a much-deserved vacation and are ready for our, our next Palm Peeps Roundtable. Thanks for, yeah, great to be back and really excited about this roundtable and have not um, had a vacation yet, but hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And, and again, I think just to all the, the programs out there and to all the trainees, um, I think everyone had a, a really great successful match. So obviously excited about that, but so excited to be um, doing a talk today, a roundtable on VV ECMO, which for, if I know this is one of your favorite topics. So I know you've been raring to go for this for a few weeks now. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I loved thinking about this. I love talking about it. I've worked with a lot of the people on this call and seen them at the national conferences and really wanted to do this episode. Uh, and I'm excited to sort of just dive into everything. So uh, let's uh, meet our guests for this roundtable and we'll kick it off. Perfect. And, you know, we're joined by three amazing guests that are known in the field. And I'll start um, first with the honor of introducing Dr. Kara Agerstrand. Kara is an associate professor of medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center, New York Presbyterian Hospital, where she's also the director of the medical ECMO program. She's an internationally renowned ECMO expert and is a current conference chair for the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, um, or ELSO. Finally, she's a lauded educator and has received the American College of Chess Physicians Distinguished Educator Award, which is awesome in and of itself. Um, and Kara, we couldn't be happier for you to join us today. Welcome to Palm Peeps. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Our next guest is Eddie Fan. Uh, Eddie is an associate professor at the University of Toronto and the University Health Network Mount Sinai Hospital. He's also the director of critical care research and the medical director of the Extracorporeal Life Support Program. He has literally hundreds of publications about ARDS, ECMO, and critical care. He chairs the ELSO Research Committee, and he spearheads multiple international collaborative studies. And having been at ELSO recently, people like swarm around Eddie just to get a, a little bit of time talking to him about ECMO. So we're really thrilled to have an hour to talk to you today. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, well thanks, uh, David, for the very kind uh, introduction. And I'm really pleased to be here. So thanks for the invitation. Welcome, Eddie. And last but not least, um, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Nita Kadir. Nita is an, is an associate professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. So um, she's, I think, joining us from Pacific time today, so appreciate that. And she's also the associate director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit there, as well as the co-director of the Post-ICU Recovery Clinic. Nita is also on the Critical Care Editorial Board for CHEST and is a highly regarded pulmonary critical care educator. And um, I think she seems to be as addicted to Twitter as many of us. So I think we're all in good company. And Nita, we couldn't be happier for you to join us as well. So welcome to Palm Peeps. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be in such lofty company and really looking forward to this discussion. Just for a reminder, this podcast for educational purposes. None of the advice should be applied to specific medical cases without the details. And the views of all of us may not necessarily reflect the views of our respective employers. All right, so let's dive in. Uh, we want to tackle big topics on Home Peeps, but in doing so, we know it's a bit of a daunting task to try to cover everything. So certainly we won't be able to talk about everything about VV ECMO, but we do want to give some basics and then uh, a launching off point to talk about some key topics of discussion. 
So in keeping with that, let's quickly talk about some of the basics. So Eddie, lofty task, but in broad strokes, could you just tell us what is VV ECMO and how it sort of fundamentally works? Sure. So um, as the name implies, uh, VV ECMO, it stands for Venovenous Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation. And here the VV tells you where the blood is being drained from and where it's being reinfused. And so the idea here is, broadly speaking, is, is that as the name implies, blood is drained from a large central vein, typically, say, the femoral vein. And that's sent in modern ECMO devices by typically a centrifugal pump to an artificial membrane lung. And there it functions like our native lung. It adds oxygen and it removes carbon dioxide. And then that arterialized blood is then returned, as the name implies, to a large central vein, let's say the internal jugular vein. And this system is connected in series, if you will, with the native cardiopulmonary circulation and provides really only respiratory support. And so you see that the, if the arterialized blood passes through the internal jugular vein, it then goes to the right heart. Your right heart has to be functioning to pump that into the pulmonary circulation. Then it enters the left heart. Your left heart has to be working to pump it into the systemic circulation where that oxygenated blood can then do its business. So here the heart has to be working and VV ECMO is ostensibly just providing respiratory support. Um, the other final maybe point in broad strokes to think about is the real nice thing about ECMO is that oxygenation and ventilation or, or carbon dioxide removal is relatively dissociated, right? So we can manipulate oxygenation by increasing or reducing blood flow rate, so how much is being drained and re being returned to the body, and, and that's typically thought of as a function of the person's native cardiac output. And ventilation or CO2 removal is controlled by the sweep gas flow rate. So the more sweep <clears throat> gas that we put into the artificial lung, the more CO2 is removed, and the less sweep gas flow we put in, the less CO2 is removed. So that's sort of broadly speaking the basics of VV ECMO. Yeah, thanks so much. Great, succinct explanation. Now that we sort of understand that this is an extracorporeal option, oxygen in, CO2 out, we have, can control them independently, and that we're relying on the native heart, we should sort of think about who are the patients that this is going to help us with. Uh, so Kara, I'd love to turn to you for that. You know, broadly, which patients are being supported on VV ECMO? Like, what are the major indications that are getting us to this conversation? Great. Um, yeah, that's a great question, Dave. So the majority of patients treated uh, with VV ECMO today have uh, what we call ARDS, or the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, uh, patients with acute, reversible, and severe uh, respiratory failure, often caused by pneumonia. You know, we typically will support those patients for anywhere from, you know, one to two or three weeks um, at a time um, until, uh, you know, they can sufficiently recover, you know, given time, antibiotics, and other treatments. Other conditions that VV ECMO would be used for include uh, status asthmaticus, so severe forms of hypercaptic respiratory failure, and also um, as a bridge to a lung transplant. Uh, this is typically in patients with cystic fibrosis, maybe in patients with interstitial lung disease who don't have concomitant pulmonary hypertension um, or other you know, severe advanced forms of chronic lung disease. Thanks so much, Kara. And it sounds like for these patients that you mentioned um, and the populations, you know, we're really trying to use VV ECMO as a, as a bridge to either get them to transplant or to help them while we treat their underlying lung disease or specific um, infectious etiology. Anita, I wanted to um, turn to you and ask you a little bit more. I know Ed, Eddie um, highlighted some of this when he was describing the general point of VV ECMO, but wanted to get your sense on some more specific goals with ECMO to achieve endpoints. Um, and specifically, when you're caring for a patient on ECMO, what are your oxygenation and CO2 removal goals? 
So in terms of oxygenation and CO2 removal targets, those are the specific numbers are not necessarily very well defined or even agreed upon. But I want to talk a little bit more about the overarching goals um, for oxygenation and CO2 removal. And basically the big picture, your major goal is to have gas exchange supported by the ACMO circuit and not the lungs. And by doing that, you can put the patient on lung rest bed settings, which we'll talk a little bit more uh, about later on in this discussion. In terms of oxygenation and CO2 removal, oxygenation is the more challenging thing to accomplish. So I think it's important to understand the variables that determine how well you can oxygenate a patient. And Eddie touched on this a bit already. Um, But just to expand, those variables are the FiO2, the ECMO blood flow, and the ratio of the ECMO blood flow to the patient's cardiac output. And while the first two variables, the FiO2 and ECMO blood flow, are intuitive and I think well-known, the ratio of the ECMO blood flow to the patient's cardiac output is something that I think is less talked about, but also really does make sense intuitively. Not all of the patient's venous return is instantaneously going to go through the circuit. So even though the blood that's returned uh, to the patient is fully oxygenated, it's mixing with the rest of the patient's venous return, where the oxygenation is, of course, going to be much less. So with your initial ECMO settings, you do want to keep this in mind when you're setting the flow. It's going to be different for, say, like a five foot two woman with IPF who is pre-lung transplant um, than it would be for, say, a six foot two, 100 kilo man with strep pneumonia, um, sepsis. CO2 removal, uh, on the other hand, is much easier to accomplish as the CO2 basically readily diffuses across the membrane. Um, And the CO2 removal is largely determined by the sweep gas inflow rate. It's a very effective process, and this is important to keep in mind if you have a profoundly hypercapnic patient. You might actually want to start at a lower sweep flow rate to ensure that you have slow controlled CO2 removal to minimize the risk of neurologic injury. Thanks so much for walking us through that. It's always helpful to think about when we're we're trying to achieve these goals of what we're to aiming at, but then also how easy it is and, and sort of what factors on the ECMO circuit are, are helping us achieve them. Follow up on a couple other things we think about with these patients. You know, I know caring for ECMO patients is really complex. We're obviously going to be looking to provide the adequate oxygenation and CO2 removal that they need. But, you know, I was hoping you could expand too on some other factors we're sort of monitoring to know if our patient is getting better and things that we're aiming for on ECMO. You mentioned things like lung protection, but trying to see what types of things we're trying to achieve with the circuit to help our patients along in their recovery process. So in terms of what we're trying to achieve, I think a lot of critical care amounts to supporting the patient while avoiding complications and giving time for healing. And I think the same concept applies here when it comes to the ventilator. So we mentioned long rest ventilator settings, but basically since you're no longer fully dependent on the ventilator for oxygenation, you can put the patient on vent settings that are much less injurious and reduce the risk of ventilator-induced lung injury. 
Great. Thanks so much, Nita. And I feel like we've gotten a sense of, you know, how ECMO works and some of its uses and target populations. And it seems like, you know, for the right patient, it could be a really powerful tool. But I think like in everything in medicine, you know, there's sometimes things that it's helpful for, but we also have to be cognizant of some of the downsides as well. So Eddie, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the major risks that you see for an uh, individual being on VV ECMO? Yeah, this is a good question. I think, you know, broadly speaking, um, probably the major risks we typically think about when we think about ECMO are bleeding and thrombosis. There, there are going to be a whole host of risks that are also associated with the fact that like any vascular access device, there could be vascular injury at the time of cannulation, bleeding, infection risk, these sorts of things, which are certainly important and um, uh, to think about in, in the ECMO patient. But really, when we think about ECMO, we're thinking about the risk of bleeding and thrombosis. We have good studies suggesting that bleeding is more common than thrombosis and bleeding is more important from a prognostic point of view than uh, thrombosis. And I think bleeding is really the main risk that clinicians think about in the trade-off of what the benefits could be with VV ECMO versus the downsides. And that bleeding risk comes from, you know, again, broadly speaking, two factors. One is, is that the artificial um, membrane lung and the pump can induce coagulopathy and platelet dysfunction in and of itself. So you know, that's uh, one factor. And second is that typically we run these systems with some form of systemic anticoagulation to perform, to prevent thrombosis of the artificial membrane uh, lung and circuit. And so these two things together, coupled with whatever critical underlying critical illness the patient might have leads to typically a confluence of uh, higher risk for bleeding. And so this could be, again, bleeding at the vascular access site, bleeding from other vascular access sites, could lead to GI bleeding, other mucosal bleeding. And really the critical one that we think about as, clin of, as clinicians is uh, intracranial hemorrhage, which is, you know, in the sort of 5 to 10% range if you look at data from the ELSO registry, but certainly it could be catastrophic if it occurs and is often fatal uh, in these patients. Thrombosis is less of a concern, so it could be thrombosis of the circuit itself or the membrane, and that can lead to dysfunction, which has its own host of uh, problems. But also, as the cannulas stay in the patient for a much longer period of time, if there's some enforced bed rest or immobilization, then they can get both cannula-related thrombosis or, you know, other sort of thrombotic events from being immobilized in bed. But again, bleeding, I would say, is the major risk that we think about when we're thinking about BBFO. Great, thanks, Eddie. So yeah, ble bleeding and thrombosis. I think those two things uh, we can uh, we can definitely remember. And you know, I think definitely thinking about someone you know who may be thrombocytopenic and for the reasons you said may not be anticoagulated could be someone that or may not be able to undergo VV ECMO. Kara, I wanted to ask you though, what are some other contraindications to VV ECMO and certain patient populations that aren't good candidates? Yeah, that's a that's a really important question um, as well. It's funny because as, as complex and as high, uh, you know, resource of an intervention the ECMO is, there aren't a lot of absolute contraindications, but there are many relative contraindications. So I would say probably the only absolute contraindication is, you know, a patient who has advanced disease, organ failure, or an inability to recover, even if ECMO were to be initiated. For example, someone who has catastrophic brain injury, you know, prior to consideration of ECMO or prolonged cardiac arrest without neurologic recovery or advanced lung disease uh, without the option for transplantation. You know, those patients are unfortunately not going to recover whether or not VV ECMO is initiated. And in that, that would be an absolute contraindication. You know, it's a, there are a lot of relative contraindications and certainly things to be considered in the calculus of whether someone is, you know, is we say ECMO candidate. 
Um, for ARDS, uh, probably most importantly, that would be prolonged respiratory failure. So a prolonged period of time receiving high pressure ventilation, you know, high FiO2, where we think maybe some of that damage has already been done, you know, to those lungs. Um, other relative contraindications would be things like active bleeding, problems with vascular access, for example, or, you know, other um, comorbidities that may make recovery more challenging. For example, a patient with, uh, you know, some degree of liver cirrhosis and, you know, decompensated liver disease, as an example. You know, in patients uh, going to lung transplant, you know, the contraindications really are center-dependent, but some factors that uh, would be considered might be uh, the patient's, you know, transplantability. What, you know, what is their likelihood of getting lungs? What is their you know, lung allocation score, like how, what is their uh, PRA? Do they have a high an, you know, antibody um, positive panel that may make finding a, you know, a lung match uh, more difficult? You know, all these things are, you know, considerations um, in whether or not a patient will be cannulated. Thanks, Kara. And I really like your, sort of your framework that a lot of it is relative and sort of thinking broadly about like who's going to benefit. I feel like this happens so much that there's not, there's this list of like, oh, you can't be on ECMO if you have these things, but we've probably all seen someone on ECMO with one of those things, right? So it's, you know, can they get better? And, and we're sort of making a, a judgment call about that as a group. From there, I want to dive in a little bit more on some specific topics and really spend some time on VV ECMO and ARDS. You know, I think, as you said, Kara, this is the most common indication for ECMO. Certainly with COVID in the last couple of years, it's led to sort of an explosion of uh, this being used, an explosion out uh, in the media and social media and things like that. So I'd love to chat about ARDS as an indication for ECMO. And I feel like any discussion with this at this point ends up touching on or starting with the 2018 EOLIA trial. So to you know, remind our listeners or inform them, this is a randomized controlled trial of patients with severe ARDS, randomized to VV ECMO or conventional care. That conventional care was very well defined and adhered to as the ARDSNET protocol standards. The trial was stopped early for futility, uh, but the primary endpoint was looking at 60-day mortality, and there seemed to be no difference between these two arms. However, there was a trend towards benefit with ECMO, and there was a significant amount of crossover from the conventional group to the ECMO group in this trial. And importantly, safety points were similar between the two groups. So I've heard this trial described by many people as a rationale for ECMO as a rescue technique. I've also heard of it described as just confirming opinions on both sides. Uh, someone, someone once told me it was the most positive negative trial they'd ever seen, right? So a lot of different opinions about it, and I think it's important to delve into them. Nita, can you tell us how you interpret the results of the OLEA trial and how it leads to influencing your practice? Sure. Well, before I tell you my in interpretation, I want to point out a few other things about the trial that might explain my interpretation. Please. So one major strength of Eolia, um, as you mentioned, was that unlike the older Caesar trial, this group really did assess the impact of ECMO as an intervention versus just being at an ECMO center. So they used a protocolized vent strategy, and there's also a high rate of use of other adjunctive therapies. And I think this is really important. After randomization, I believe about 90% of the patients getting conventional therapy got prone and about two thirds of the ECMO group did as well. And so why does this matter? Well, Usually, evidence-based practices are way underutilized. Um, in one large U.S. ARDS cohort pre-COVID, prone positioning was only used in 11% of patients who ultimately got ECMO. 
So before Eolia, I often just wondered if a lot of times we would just not need ECMO if we were actually managing ARDS appropriately. And this trial addressed that exact concern by ensuring that best practices were used in the control group. Um, And they found that mortality was still lower in the ECMO group. The fact that this mortality difference was not statistically significant. Well, I think there's some caveats to that too. So the trial unfortunately ended up being underpowered. The investigators had expected a mortality rate of 60% in the control group, 40% in the ACMO group. And, you know, expecting an absolute difference of 20% was probably pretty ambitious. And unfortunately, the trial was stopped earlier, early due to their predefined stopping criteria that said to stop if they were unlikely to attain a definitive result. So, you know, at the end of the day, is there an absolute risk reduction of 20%? Probably not, but there probably is a difference that is lower in magnitude. And in fact, there was a follow-up article in JAMA that used a Bayesian approach to look at the totality of ECMO data at the time and found that this indeed was the case. So, My interpretation of Eolia is that ECMO does likely lower mortality compared to current best practices, but it's unclear how large that benefit is. And, you know, unfortunately, without knowing the magnitude of benefit, it's still really hard to answer the question of whether we should use ECMO as a standard therapy for severe ARDS or just as a rescue for those we can't oxygenate with usual care. And... You know, an intervention like ECMO, it's not, say, like IV vitamin C, which I don't know, maybe should never be mentioned again. It's like, it's costly. (laughs) (laughs) It's costly. It's resource intensive. It's invasive. So you really have to think about what is the minimum clinically important difference to make it worth implementing ECMO as a standard therapy. So um, I guess that's a lot of words to say that, yes, I think Eolia shows us that ECMO improves outcomes in severe ARDS, but I am still unsure if it helps enough to change its status from a rescue therapy to a routine therapy for severe ARDS. Thank you, Nita, and, and specifically for adding in some of the additional context um, to the original study. I think that's helpful to, for us to remember. And I know in addition to Eolia, and you mentioned uh, Caesar trial as well, there's a lot of reviews and meta-analysis that that have been done. And I feel like, you know, there, uh, I remember one, like a couple of years ago, we had a pro-con debate for one of our fellows lectures, and it's just so interesting people bring these up, but for the both trials, but for the reasons you said, um, people are still kind of hard pressed to, to make final decisions on that. Um, so Eddie, I think I'm going to probably ask you a challenging question um, as well. Just, you know, how do you interpret the cumulative data that we, that has been published so far? And overall, do you think there's a role for ECMO and uh, ARDS? Yeah, thanks. I think it is a bit of a challenging question, but I think it's, you know, more clarity has been forthcoming from these studies. And I think Need has already touched on all the important points here. But um, so the original trial, uh, as Nita eloquently summarized, did show an 11% absolute difference in mortality in favor of the ECMO group, even though that was not statistically significant. And most of the secondary outcomes were all in the direction of favoring ECMO. So although not significant, it uh, suggested a signal for ECMO, although the magnitude, we're not sure how how big or small. And because, you know, that this trial was very difficult to uh, complete and took a long time, what we have are these secondary analyses. And so Nita's already mentioned a Bayesian reanalysis that showed across a range of priors from very skeptical to very optimistic or enthusiastic that even amongst the very skeptical, there was an 89% chance that ECMO is going to be beneficial in these patients. 
And then now we have a host of, as you already mentioned, Christina, we have individual patient data meta-analysis from the CSER and EOLIA trial. We have a number of study level meta-analyses and we even have three network meta-analyses looking at a, a web of interventions, many of which again, Nita's touched on prone positioning, inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, lung protective ventilation, recruitment maneuvers, and ECMO where all the totality of these syntheses all suggest a benefit for VV ECMO in severe ARDS patients. So my take on this is that we're unfortunately unlikely to have a larger, more definitive randomized control trial in the future. So these are the best data that clinicians at the bedside have to make a decision on whether to use ECMO or not. And my interpretation of all the primary and synthesized data is that yes, there is a benefit in severe ARDS from the use of ECMO, although the magnitude of that benefit, as Nita mentioned, is not clear. And again, so we should be considering, uh, as we do for any intervention, like what the trade-offs could be in that individual patient for what we think the benefit could be versus what the downsides might be for that patient. And I think, again, and to end, is that this has already been somewhat codified in the forthcoming ESICM clinical practice guidelines that recommend or suggest the use of ECMO in severe ARDS patients and is being evaluated in other uh, guidelines that will be forthcoming from other professional societies. Well, fantastic, Eddie. Thank you so much. And, and I think from what we're saying so far, if someone was just tuning in right now, it seems like based off the studies that we have, ECMO may be appropriate and beneficial, but the magnitude is still um, yet to be determined with that. But as you said, Eddie, you know, some ECMO can be um, a useful tool for patients with severe ARDS. And Nita, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what, what specific things are you looking for um, in a patient um, or in someone that you think is appropriate to be referred for VV ECMO? Yeah. And I don't know about you guys, because I'm glad you're asking, because this is like, I feel like the question I get the most from like residents, like which patients, I mean, they take care of a lot of ARDS, you know, when should I be calling you guys and when are you interested in hearing about them? So Nita, I'd love to hear your take. Yeah, I think this is a really important question and something that every intensivist should know whether you're at an ECMO center at or not. Um, so criteria are unfortunately highly variable at different institutions. Um, but here at UCLA, we consider ECMO in patients with a P to F of less than 80 or a pH less than 725 due to hypercapnia in spite of optimal, optimal medical management. And that's in line with what ELSO recommends as well. Um, so the optimal medical management is important. Um, we define that as appropriate vent settings with a trial of proning and neuromuscular blockade. Um, and, you know, proning, um, there is, of course, a, a substantial amount of ev evidence to support that. Neuromuscular blockade may be more debatable, but it's certainly worth trying a less invasive therapy before a more invasive therapy. So that's our rationale. Um, and, you know, again, this is all really important. And we I really want to emphasize the optimal medical management part because I can't tell you how many times I've been called for ECMO and then two hours later, the patient's PEEP is increased and they're proned and they're like down from 90% FiO2 to 50% FiO2. Other important things are that the patient has a reversible cause of ARDS because if not, there will be no endpoint to ECMO and that it's relatively early in the patient's course, meaning ideally they've been intubated for less than a week and ideally the earlier the better. Um, at our center, our average duration of mechanical ventilation prior to ECMO is actually just two days. Um, which is definitely enough time to optimize ventilator management and prone someone. 
Um, and early is important because one of the benefits of ECMO, again, is the ability to utilize lung rest settings and minimize ventilator-induced lung injury. If someone's been intubated for 10 days already, they've likely already experienced a good amount of ventilator-induced lung injury. Um, and also, just circling back to Eolia a little bit, we saw that patients who crossed over from conventional therapy to ECMO, meaning got ECMO late, had pretty terrible outcomes with mortality approaching 60%. Um, we also assess for contraindications to ECMO, some of which have been mentioned already, or other factors that might be associated with a worse outcome. Um, again, a lot of which Kara uh, mentioned earlier. Thanks so much. I, I love the point that you're emphasizing about the optimal medical care and good vent settings. I, you know, I think uh, talking to the residents recently was saying how, you know, they were asking if there are people like ECMO zealots and sort of what they believe. And I was like, well, one thing is that anyone who's an ECMO zealot is a proning zealot, right? You know, like mm -hmm. you have to do sort of the optimal medical care. We would all want people to get better without an invasive option uh, and so and to have one if we need it. After that, after we've evaluated them and thought that they were a good candidate, I'd love to hear uh, from all of you, from your centers that have a lot of high volume, once ECMO is considered, how does that process work? You know, how does the evaluation go from there? Um, so maybe, Carol, we can start with you and then Eddie and Nita, if there's something different or additional that you guys do, I'd love to hear what those things are. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for um, us um, at Columbia, the way it works is all ECMO referrals uh, from external hospitals come through our uh, hospital-wide transfer center. Those calls are funneled uh, specifically to one of our ICUs where our ECMO NP will take a you know, clinical history of that patient. We actually have developed you know, an automated uh, kind of you know, part of the EMR uh, intake system to make sure that we you know, ask all the critical questions we, we care about. You know, why does this patient have ARDS if we know? How long have they been intubated? You know, other um, you know, relevant um, issues in their history, uh, laboratory findings, et cetera. Then we'll convene a multidisciplinary team of you know, providers, including both our medical and surgical uh, members of the ECMO team to sort of determine that patient's candidacy. Um, if that patient's a candidate, we'll you know, uh, depart you know, immediately or as soon as we possibly can uh, to pick up that patient, candidate them at, their, um, at the referring hospital, and then bring them back to our ICU. That's the way that most of these consults work. And you know, I think uh, it's important for centers you know, who are calling or thinking about referring a patient to really not delay once you have a patient that meets criteria or once you have a patient even that you think is going to meet criteria once you know, optimal other standard of care medical therapies um, and treatments, as Nita mentioned, prone positioning in particular, um, have been employed. Yeah, that's great, Kara. And it's, it's so awesome to hear about how it works at different places. Like where I am now at BI, you know, the same sort of referral, although they're not cannulated in the field. They're brought over and made sure that I'm optimized uh, at our center and then done it. Um, and it's just, you know, different ways that they function. Uh, Eddie and Anita, I don't know if your guys is similar or if you're doing uh, mobile ECMO or in the field cannulations. We did a lot of mobile ECMO um, prior to COVID-19. So about a third of our ECMO referrals were for mobile like retrieval, like uh, cannulation and then retrieval. Um, COVID really put a, you know, a difficult, made it difficult to send uh, our human health resources for so many hours to, to assess that. So we did a lot more of the transfer stabilization and if needed cannulation at our sites and took referrals much earlier uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic just because of the strain on our system. I think, I mean, I think otherwise, it sounds like our system is quite similar to what Kara described. I mean, I think the only other point I might mention is, is that 
I'm sure like in uh, both Nita and Kara's hospitals, the decision is, um, is interprofessional and multidisciplinary. So we don't typically make any decisions on candidacy or timing or these sorts of things like in isolation. So it doesn't happen to be the NP or the physician or whoever's on call who gets the call. We usually collect that information and discuss it as a team. And at least in my hospital, that requires at least two physicians, usually a surgeon and an intensivist or two intensivists or two surgeons, depending on who's available. And we can always bring in more ECMO team members if there's not a clear consensus or there's some concerns or red flags that we want to flesh out more, discuss more. Because again, I think as Nita mentioned, it's a very resource intensive, invasive and uh, costly intervention. And we want to be sure that we're deploying it in uh, patients that we believe uh, will benefit uh, from the therapy. So at our center, um, the process is pretty similar to what both Kara and Eddie described. A multidisciplinary team discusses the patient's candidacy. Um, we do mobile ECMO, and I think actually a majority of our um, patients who go on ECMO have originated their care at an outside hospital. Um, I'm, I'm glad that Eddie brought up strain because a part of our multidisciplinary discussion um, includes a discussion of um, resource availability. Um, so like bed control and um, nursing leadership are on those calls. Um, and, you know, this is maybe uncomfortable to talk about, but I think important to bring up. Um, during times of strain, our ability to take less than optimal cases decreases. Um, and, you know, that, that's uncomfortable for everyone, but unfortunately a reality that we saw a lot of um, during COVID, but even, you know, during the worst of COVID, but um, even beyond that. So, you know, for example, say you had like a previously healthy 65-year-old with influenza and ARDS who had been intubated for 10 days, um, that might be someone I cannulate if I have plenty of bed availability, but someone I, you know, might not be able to take a chance on if we are under strain and, you know, we have, we have to like perform bed gymnastics to even to make a bed available. Yeah. Thank you for pointing out. I mean, I think these real world problems really became highlighted during COVID and, and it will be things that we should ongoing discuss and, and plan. Uh, and the dialogue is important, right? So if it happens in real life, we should be talking about it. So thanks for bringing it up. I think this next question is the one I'm most looking forward to because I feel like there's the least sort of guidelines on this and it's a question I get all the time. So Nita mentioned the importance of using ECMO for ultra lung protective ventilation, you know, trying to say that we don't need to use the ventilator as much. We know the ventilator, while often necessary, can be harmful to patients. And so we want to put patients on lung rest or lung safe settings. Kara, I'm going to sort of start with you. I know you were on this uh, lifeguard study where the whole purpose was to try to figure out what patient, what people are doing with ultra lung protective ventilation and what helps. Uh, and I know one of the takeaways is that most ECMO centers are doing some version of this. So what does ultra lung protective ventilation look like? How should we be ventilating these patients once we have them on the ECMO circuit for ARDS? Uh, that's a really uh, fantastic question, Dave. And I think when people ask, you know, what is lung protective ventilation? It's kind of asking like, what is love? You know, it's different things <laughs> to different people. Um, but the overall principle is really that what we want to do with ultra lung protective or you know lung rest ventilation is shift the work of breathing. Um, you know, I say that in quotes from or gas exchange from the patient to the circuit, right? So we want to use the circuit for that exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide and really minimize uh, the need for the patient's lungs to do so. Um, this is as we've discussed with with 
the goal of preventing further ventilator-induced uh, lung injury. And what that looks like practically is really reducing the mechanical power to the lungs, right? So we're reducing you know, both the respiratory rate and the pressure applied to the lungs, sort of broadly speaking. Um, we might have that patient's respiratory rate at set at, let's say, six to 10 breaths per minute. We will try to you know, minimize that pressure on the lungs. For example, going from a high peak maybe of 15 or 20 down to a moderate peak of 10. Um, uh, you know, weaning the FiO2 on the ventilator as much as possible, minimizing the tidal volumes, uh, perhaps targeting a plateau pressure, certainly less than 24 or 24 and under as they did in Neolia, um, or, you know, potentially lower, um, either via volume control or pressure, you know, control uh, mode of ventilation. Different centers have different approaches to lung rest. Some people prefer volume control, some people prefer pressure control, some people prefer like a modified, you know, APRV type setting. Um, but the idea overall um, is really similar, um, you know, throughout the world, which is reduce that mechanical power to the lungs themselves. That's great. Eddie, Nita, anything to add? Nothing other than the um, what is lung rest being equivalent to the what is love question is pretty great. And I'm yeah. going to steal that. I agree. That might be the title of this episode. <laughs> when, when you guys I find know. the answer, please let me know. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing, Nita. And I'm going to, I'm going to um, connect the two of those each time I think about them now. And I know we've spent a lot of time um, talking about ECMO for ARDS specifically, and we'll try to end, you know, on one kind of general question, which can still be um, daunting and um, challenging to ask, but it's regarding the future of VB ECMO uh, for ARDS. And Eddie, I know you mentioned earlier, you know, the studies that we have right now are the best data that we can um, use to help guide our, our care of patients. But um, if you could, I guess, envision or, you know, in, in your perfect world, uh, I'll start with you, Eddie, what will the next trials look like that help that can help guide our care for um, VB ECMO in patients? Yeah, I think, I think if you start from the premise that VV ECMO is useful in patients with severe ARDS, then I think future studies to help us understand how to improve the benefits or maximize benefits and reduce risks or complications might be the way forward. So some ideas on that might be, for instance, the risks, like how can we reduce bleeding and anticoagulation requirements? That might be better surfaces, better coatings, op more optimal anticoagulation strategies. We've talked a lot about mechanical ventilation. We think that's an important component. So how to optimally mechanically ventilate these patients might lead to more benefits and less risks. Um, how do we mobilize these patients? I think we're going to talk a bit more like, so reducing morbidity and not just improve, improving morbidity and not just improving short-term outcomes. So I think a lot of these things, um, sort of the management around ECMO patients, which could help sort of tip the scales in favor of greater benefits and less risks or complications might be the way forward for the future. And the second important thing I think that we learned from COVID, or one, you know, one of the many things we learned from COVID is, is that could VV ECMO actually be beneficial in patients who are less hypoxemic than our current um, threshold, for instance, for meolia of a PaO2 FiO2 ratio of 80. So interestingly, a number of um, more rigorous observational studies in COVID, including the Stop COVID investigators and one from the COVID-19 Critical Care Consortium suggested that VV ECMO was beneficial in patients who had more moderate ARDS up to a PF ratio of maybe 150. So perhaps a future study could look at whether VV ECMO in, indeed is uh, beneficial in patients with less severe hypoxemia. I love that, Eddie. Um, Nita, Kara, anything else that you want to add from that y'all are thinking about? You know, I would just 
add to you know anybody who who's you know listening to the podcast is that like not every center is an ECMO center and probably not every center needs to be an ECMO center, but it's so critical for all of us in the critical care community to know where to refer our patients who might be ECMO candidates. So to establish those relationships with maybe a, a larger regional hospital or tertiary care hospital, you know, um, you know, in relative geographic proximity to have a known, you know, sort of pipeline as a place to sort of uh, to refer and send, you know, those patients who might benefit from this um, device. I, I would agree with that. So, you know, even beyond a research standpoint, from an operational standpoint, um, because not all centers are ECMO centers, I think and hope that there will be efforts to regionalize ECMO. Um, unsurprisingly, outcomes are better at places that do a high volume of ECMO. Um, and in an ideal world, I would think that there would be networks of hospitals within a region that would be affiliated with an ECMO center for, with a mobile ECMO team. Um, from a research standpoint, um, Eddie touched on a lot of unanswered questions that we have about minimizing risk for patients once they're on ECMO. Um, and I think there's just there's so much material there because a lot of how we manage these patients currently is based on expert op opinion rather than robust data. So, um, you know, a lot of very basic questions like what are the right oxygenation targets or how are drug pharmacokinetics impacted by ECMO? Um, those are all areas that um, we need to delve into further. Awesome. So I want to turn the conversation now uh, to ECMO away from ours, but as a bridge to lung transplant. Kara Matt mentioned this is one of the uses, and I think it's a nice lens to talk about some other topics in ECMO as well. You know, based on the current transplant data, at least from the United States, um, the amount of ECMO as a bridge transplant has increased pretty dramatically uh, in the last few years, while mechanical ventilation as a bridge is decreasing, sort of showing that there's maybe a favoring of using ECMO in, in some patients if they are the right candidates. Uh, you know, I was just wondering if you could uh, opine a little bit about like why this option is increasing in popularity in the transplant world. So I think a couple of reasons. One, there are just there are more places using ECMO, and there's an increased level of comfort with ECMO. Um, and I think you know more than that, though. Um, you know, unlike patients with ARDS, patients who are started on ECMO pre-transplant generally do not need to concurrently be on mechanical ventilation. And because of this, using ECMO as a bridge to transplant rather than mechanical ventilation as a bridge to transplant allows patients to maintain their mobility, um, be awake, um, participate in rehab, which um, we all know is crucial pre-transplant. Um, so I think that's that's probably the biggest reason why it has um, why enthusiasm for ECMO as a bridge to transplant has increased. Um, a big part of transplant is um, staying, you know, physically fit, as been mentioned previously. Um, and I know that sometimes patients bridging to transplant ECMO are not intubated. And Kara, I wanted to um, see what you thought some of the challenges of managing a patient who is not intubated but who's on ECMO. Um, could be that um, our learners should be um, aware of. Uh, yes, you know, I think in, in general, um, having these patients uh, non-intubated, not trached or whatnot as they bridge a transplant is, is you know, typically the way we tend, we tend to go and it, it works quite well. I think some of the challenges to look out for are that, you know, when you have an awake patient, you have the issues that come with a patient in the ICU being awake, which might be that they're very anxious or nervous. Maybe they... Uh, you know, might become delirious at night and pull at things. And, you know, it's 
one thing when someone pulls out their IV, but it's certainly another if they want to pull out that cannula. So we certainly need to be very mindful of those, you know, uh, ICU-related patient issues um, that can arise. I think, you know, kind of at a from a a broader perspective, one particularly difficult challenge in an awake patient who's bridging the transplant is what happens if that patient no longer becomes a transplant candidate. Let's say for whatever reason, maybe they've developed, um, you know, drug-resistant infections that, you know, they can't clear or whatnot. And now you have a patient who's been delisted from that transplant list, um, who uh, is awake, interactive, and is, you know, sort of has no destination, right? They're, this bridge to transplant has become this, you know, bridge to nowhere, so to speak. So that would be, you know, potentially very challenging for the patient themselves, for the patient's family member, and for the entire ICU team who now have to, who now are struggling with caring for a patient who doesn't have, you know, real viable outcome. Yeah, totally. I was reading a great piece recently about how the advent of mechanical ventilation was like a, a door for a lot of the ethical issues we talk about now, like brain death and things like that that didn't happen as much. And uh, I think you're touching on it right is that, you know, with any new technology, there's going to be some ethical things that come up at some point. And so worth thinking about. On the same topic of the bridging them to transplant and not having them intubated, uh, I want to talk a little bit about mobility. Uh, you know, and I want this is not just for bridging to transplant patients. I think we're hoping to talk about this in patients who are recovering also. But it's a pretty intimidating concept about uh, mobilizing people who are on ECMO. And I feel like once you know, there's a lot of videos out there of people playing basketball and walking that you know are always very impressive. So Eddie, I just wanted to ask you, you know, in your unit, how are you safely mobilizing patients? Uh, if they're intubated, if they're not intubated, uh, what kind of things are necessary for that? Yeah, I think it's a good question, Dave. And I think maybe to start with exactly that, dispelling the idea that the vast majority of ECMO patients are playing basketball or out in the courtyard of the hospital enjoying <laughs> the sunshine. I think, you know, at, at the present time, it's still a relative minority of patients. And I would say of that minority, the majority of those patients are typically the patients like Kara described. They're non-intubated, bridging the lung transplant. It's much easier to manage these patients who have a more chronic respiratory failure picture, uh, awake, mobile, cooperative on ECMO than it is um, sort of an acutely, more critically ill patient with ARDS, influenza, they're highly inflamed, they might have other organ dysfunction and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, like in non-ECMO patients, we're trying always to target light levels of sedation, get our patients awake, liberate them from life support when available, and if safe to do so, to have them undergo early mobility, which may be a grade, gradient from passive you know, bed exercises all the way up to ambulation if possible. I think when thinking specifically about ACMO, it's um, the key thing is much like in the awake patient is we don't want the patient to uh, become more unstable when you try to have them undergo some kind of rehabilitation. And two is to maintain security of the cannula that are in place, because if that goes badly, then things will go very badly. So um, in terms of the first one, we have sort of, a, again, it's an interprofessional team. We have very experienced physical therapists in my unit who have been mobilizing transplant patients, ventilated patients, and now ECMO patients. And we do a kind of timeout like you would for any procedure. What is the therapy plan that the physical therapist is planning today? Is it just pivoting to a stand? Is it just dangling at the bedside? Is it actually marching on the spot? These sorts of things. And then we have all the necessary support staff there. So typically the bedside nurse, a perfusionist to modulate the perfusion settings if the patient's intubated, perhaps also respiratory therapist to modulate mechanical ventilation. And then once we have that plan in place, then we try to make adjustments that might be needed to help ensure stability when the patient undergoes that 
physical therapy. So again, like you would in a ventilated patient, you might want to increase the level of support. You might want to increase the FiO2 because they're about to undergo exercise. So we might similarly increase or modulate blood flow. We might increase sweep gas flow rate to make the patient more comfortable and tolerate therapy um, uh, better uh, in these situations. And before we mobilize patients to sitting at edge of bed or higher, we always have the cannulator, which is typically in my hospital, the surgeon, come every morning to assess the cannulation sites that the sutures are all in place, the cannula is well secured. We actually make daily measurements of how where the cannula is to make sure that it hasn't shifted. So this, the cannulation team signs off that the cannula is secure for the proposed therapy that's about to happen in that day. And so with those pieces in place, we safely mobilize patients um, on ECMO and uh, unfortunately have not had many serious adverse events from uh, these sorts of uh, interventions. Very cool. Thanks so much, Eddie. And definitely, definitely a team approach um, for mobilization. And, you know, I think we are um, exactly at an hour on the dot and I can't believe how fast the time has flown by um, together during our conversation. I think we've got a lot of great and insightful tips um, from the three of you. So definitely appreciate you all. Um, what Firf and I like to do kind of at each episode is just leave the listeners with some final takeaways. Um, so kind of one or two key points that you want um, listeners to remember. And um, I can go ahead and start. And I think I have three, one kind of from each of you. Um, and I think from Nita, you were saying, uh, based off the studies we have so far, while the magnitude is is still not known um, and future studies can help address that, you know, ECMO can be appropriate in certain patient populations and severe ARDS. Um, Eddie, I remember you were saying the risks that we should be mindful of um, include both uh, bleeding and our thrombosis. Um, and Kara, um, I think from you, you were saying there's, you know, besides an irreversible um, kind of condition and not a br- uh, patient not having a bridge to another outcome, that may be an al- absolute contraindication, but otherwise there's just more relative contraindications for ECMO. And I think we're all going to remember um, and parallel lung, lung protective rest and love going forward after this. <laughs> um, but Barf, I'll go to you next. Um, any takeaways you want people to remember? Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to go for an early one. You know, Eddie was describing the circuit and he talked about it being in series with the patient's cardiopulmonary system. And I just think it's really important when you're learning this to have a core sense of the physiology and understanding that, that you're really doing something that then is dependent on their own heart, flowing through their own lungs and going out to the body. So uh, a good, uh, simple framework for people to remember. Perfect. Nita, what about you? So in terms of takeaways, I think every intensivist, as I mentioned before, whether you're in at, a, at an ECMO center or not, um, should know when to refer for ECMO. So um, the answer to that is refer as early as possible, but not before you've optimized the vent and prone the patient. Perfect. Kara? I would definitely agree with Nita um, on that front. Um, but that's really the, the critical, I think, takeaway. I mean, it's one thing, um, you know, to put a patient on ECMO, but so much of success really relies on the medical management of that patient after cannulation and that sort of multidisciplinary interprofessional team approach to the care of these very complex patients. Fantastic. And Eddie, what about you? Yeah, not much to add to what everybody said. I think based on the current evidence, like I think it's gone beyond not, not, it's not a question of if ECMO works, but when and in whom, and you've heard sort of in this podcast, um, you know, sort of the considerations for those. So that might be the advice I'd leave with, uh, with listeners. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again to our three amazing guests. Thank you all for tuning in and listening. Uh, we'll have more episodes coming out soon and hopefully some more detailed things about ECMO, ARDS, and Prony and all the topics we've talked about. Uh, this episode was written and produced by myself and Christina Montemayor. The music's original music by Eric Rogers, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.